Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast, where we exist so that way you can experience God. If you like this content, would you consider subscribing and joining our online community? That way you can get notified on each week's messages. With that being said, we pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to take one step closer to Jesus. Somebody say, there is more. There is more. Amen. Listen, um, a few years ago, there was a pretty bizarre thing, true story, you can look it up yourself, that happened uh, in the Pittsburgh area with a guy by the name of MacArthur Wheeler. Uh, I don't mean this to sound ugly, but the story will make this as a fact that he was probably a few fries short of a Happy Meal. (laughs) MacArthur had learned that you could make disappearing ink out of lemon juice and then took that idea and said, if I put disappearing ink or lemon juice all over my face, you will not be able to see my face. So MacArthur then takes uh, lemon juice, puts it all over his face and face in his disappearing ink model, uh, and proceeds to rob two banks there in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, without covering his face, without putting on a mask, without so much as a hat or sunglasses, walks boldly into the bank, robs the banks, and walks out of them. Shortly after that, as you can assume, uh, the police recognized him, found out who he was, goes to his house, and when they knock on the door and they go to his house and arrest him because he really thought he wasn't seen, so he just goes to his house afterwards. When they go to his house or apartment, I think it was, uh, they knock on the door and when they arrest him, he said, how could you see me? I had the juice. To which the police are like, what? And he starts to explain to them that he had put disappearing ink, a.k.a. lemon juice, all over his face. In fact, the stories go that, as you can imagine, that he's like squinting because you got lemon juice running down your eyeballs. He's got lemon juice. And so he, he explains to them what he had done. And they're all laughing at him because this is the dumbest thing they had ever heard of. That starts to lead into a psychological principle, a leadership principle, an effect of psychology that is now called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It was studied, and you see this. The Dunning-Kruger effect uh, looks like this. The person who knows the least, go to that slide, the person who knows the least is often the one who is most confident in what they think they know. Right now, your mind is going to family members... (laughs) people you work with, your boss. And it's funny because it's a true statement. It's it's really a thing uh, that the people who know the least oftentimes have the most confidence because they think they know the most. Now, meanwhile, what will happen is through life experience slash education or what have you, all of a sudden you will find out how little you know Until you come out on the other side as an expert that you actually are in the top people in your field. You are an expert. And at that point, you will still not be as confident as you were when you actually knew nothing. Because you were so confident. Ignorance is bliss. You were so confident. I saw this firsthand. Um, My previous church, I was there when my, my lead pastor at that point, Scott Finkston, he got his doctorate. And I remember him talking about it on the stage. And a lot of people had been asking him. They said, do you feel smarter now that you have your doctorate? And his reply, I thought, was very profound. He said, no, I actually feel dumber. Because the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And the smarter you get, oftentimes, the way it should function, is the more humble you get because you start to realize everything you don't know. Now, with that being said, I want to ask this fundamental question. Do you know how little you know? 
Do I know how little I know? Because sometimes I think I know it all, and as soon as I think I know it all, I'm actually the most ignorant person in the room because I'm not experiencing all that God would have for me in the Christian life because I'm settled with what I already know. Are you with me? What happens is familiarity starts to breed comfort. You you see this... um, really portrayed well as how to break out of this uh, in the story of the four-minute mile. In 1956, 1954, uh, May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile. But you have to understand that at that time period, they thought it was physically impossible to go faster than four minutes in a mile. Many people had been trying to break it, but nobody could break it. And they are running, but it was, it was considered physically impossible. And I don't know if you've ever tried it, but just try to break the four-minute mile on a bicycle, and you will start to realize how fast that is. It's crazy. Uh, you will struggle if you can even do it on a bicycle riding and getting it to a mile in four minutes. You need a racing bike or something, or you're really good. It, it's tough. So on that particular day, though, in 1954, Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile. All of a sudden, the glass ceiling of what could be done is shattered. Not long afterwards, 46 days afterwards, John Landy, an Australian runner, breaks it again. A few months after that, it's broken twice more. A year later, three people break it in one race. And what you found was, we thought we couldn't go any further than this, but as soon as one person goes further, all of a sudden you realize everybody can, and people start breaking it. To this day, the, the, the current is 3 minutes and 43 seconds, point, point 13. So they've broken it all the way by almost 17 seconds at this point, breaking the 4-minute mile. Why? Because at some point you have to break the fake glass ceiling that says, I can't go further than this. We have to be people who learn how to live on the edge of our incompetence, the edge of our ignorance. If you don't learn this, you will be satisfied to always stay back in the status quo and life as we've known it and never actually progress. You'll never advance. You'll never grow. You, you see this really obviously when you look at teaching with children. Uh, look at a child and in, in, in from kindergarten to 12th grade or beyond if they go to college. Take something that's practical and simple as math. Early on, you live on the edge of your ignorance because you're learning that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and then you get the big numbers, 12 plus 12 equals 24. And that's, that's stretching you to learn that. But as soon as you're stretched to learn that, now you're stretched to learn your multiplication tables and your division Oh, and that stretches you to a whole nother level. But as soon as you're stretched to learn that, now you start becoming stretched to to go into advanced math and pre-algebra and then into algebra and beyond, which, as a student, I still think is ridiculous. And I say that mostly because Pastor Ken, a former math teacher, is sitting on the front row. The math teacher's like, well, you won't always have a calculator with you. And I'm like, nowadays, you do on your phone all the time. (laughs) If you're a math teacher, we love you. I just stunk at math all my life. Um, but, but what happens though, you see this, the child learns on the edge of their ignorance all the time. They live there. They're forced to because the school makes it happen. But what happens so often is at some point we, quote, graduate. And once we graduate, we stop living on the edge of our ignorance and we start living in the place of life as we know it and what I know. And we're not stretching ourselves. And if you're not stretching yourself, you are no longer growing. Your Christian faith 
should be stretching you to grow in Christ because you are living on the edge of what you know is possible. There is an entire parable that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God where he says the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field and a man bought the entire field. He sold all he had, bought the field and went out to get the treasure. Listen, there are treasures in the kingdom of God that are hidden for those who have the willingness to break out of their comfort and go find them and discover them. There are treasures and mysteries within the kingdom of God that many people never discover that are waiting for you to pioneer waiting for you to be the one to break out of the norm and status quo and live in a place that you'll actually stretch out to get them? I was thinking about this because we have to live in this way. We are meant to be pioneers. Make no mistake, that's who we are. And I was thinking about the trepidation that a Christopher Columbus must have faced as he starts to go out into the great unknown. And he had some theories about what he might find, but he never really knew what he was going to find. And he's going out and something deep inside him would call him to the... To the, to the unknown and out of the known. Something would call him to the fearful, scared, crazy, what could be, rather than the safe, protective of what I've always known. Something would call a, a Lewis and a Clark to go out far beyond what they had ever known, where they could die. But they would never, rather live in the place of fear and death and Hardship than they would live in the place of security and safety. I think there's something inside of us as Christians that God is calling us to. He's wooing us to this place to chart the great unknown. As Tony would love me to quote, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I did that just for Tony. It makes him happy. But the question becomes, what if there's more than we are experiencing, but yet our confidence is so high simply because of our ignorance? And we think, I know what it means to live the Christian life, and I know what it is, and I do this, and I do that. And we get stuck in this place of confidence, which is really a place of ignorance, because we have not explored the great unknown of what could be. (laughs) Do we suffer from the Dunning-Kruger effect within the church? Have we gotten so accustomed to the ordinary that we stopped stretching for the extraordinary. Are you hungry for more? Are you hungry for more? What what if there's more out there? What if there's more out there, but it's going to cost you a price like Lewis and Clark? It's not easy to find. It's going to take some work and blood, sweat, and tears. What if there's more out there, though? What is it that drives you that would actually pioneer a trail that is yet to be paved? To do things that you've never seen done. To be a part of something that's greater than you in the very depths of who you are. What if you're only experiencing a very small part of the great allotment of what God has for you? What if there's more? If you want to turn there, Ephesians 3, 8, and 9 is maybe our main passage. I don't know, I'm going to share a few, but this is a different type of message as you will catch on to. Paul's writing to the church of Ephesians. We typically quote verse 8. We memorize it sometimes, but we don't always catch on to what he's saying in verse 9. Although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, 
who created all things. Do you realize that there are things that are hidden in God waiting for those who will actually step out to find them? There are truths, there are principles, there is, there is working of miracles and miraculous supernatural things that will only be discovered to those who are willing to step out of their comfort zone, get into the uncomfortable world of pioneering something. And as soon as you see one person do it, that's a remnant we're going to talk about next week, don't miss next week, but as soon as you see one person do it, you start to realize maybe, maybe I could do it too. Maybe there is something more going on here than just what I understand. Are you hungry for more? Because don't make the mistake of thinking that what you have experienced is all that there is to experience. I don't care where you are in your relationship with Christ. And if you're taking notes, uh, just a few little things. Number one, hunger is a sign of health. Hunger is a sign of health. This is key. If you see a child and, and they're not hungry, maybe a meal might be okay, but if they're missing multiple meals, you can, even if the child can't speak, you know something is wrong with the child because the child should be eating. Listen, hunger is a sign of your spiritual health. If you are not hungry for more of God, you may not be spiritually healthy. And I don't have time to unpack all that I'd love to, but go back and listen to a few messages ago. Because the simple fact is you can be starving, and we know all about this because some of us are still fasting. You can be starving on the inside, but actually lose your hunger. Starving for the very thing that you need, but not desiring the thing that you need. Which, by the way, who's been fasting these 21 days? Tonight, officially, the fast ends with fire night. So after fire night tonight, whatever you've been fasting, you can eat. Some of you are more excited about that than you are fire night. <clears throat> You're like, I'm coming to fire night just because I know I'm going to go eat some cake afterwards or whatever. <laughs> the Cheesecake Factory is packed full of risers after. <laughs> so it's like, I've had 21 days without coffee. I'm going to stay up all night Sunday night. I'm going to drink a boatload of coffee. <laughs> I'm teasing a little bit. But, but you can actually be in that place that you're famished, but you don't know you're famished. You're starving, but you're not craving the very thing that you need. And it's natural as a Christian that you become hungry. Now, the Pentecostal movement of which we are a part of, every once in a while I talk to somebody and they're like, oh, you're a Pentecostal church? And I'm like, how have you not caught on to this? <laughs> First of all, just be around. Anyway, but the Pentecostal movement that we are a part of literally came out of a hunger for more. Hunger for more is what birthed the Pentecostal movement. If you were to go back, let me give you a quick history lesson. We don't have time to go into all of it. And then I'm going to share stories. A quick history lesson. Um, John Wesley started what would be called the Methodist movement. In the Methodist movement, he taught a second work of grace. That they were salvation, but then post-salvation, God was going to do a second work of grace that would make you holy. This second work of grace uh, was, was, was what they were longing for. It was a hunger that there's something more than what they're experiencing. And when they experience this second work of grace, all of a sudden at that point I would become holy. Which is why if you follow the Pentecostal roots, it comes out of the holiness movement. That's all part of that same thing. And so they were striving for holiness. They're living holy. Now I personally have a theory. It may not be correct. Don't take this to the bank. But it's my theory that John Wesley's second work of grace was actually a first work of grace. Because at that time period people were Christian mostly because they were born in a Christian household or because they went to church there was never really a surrendering to Christ oftentimes and I think what people discovered was you gave your life to Christ you got saved and they thought it was a second work of grace when it was really a first work now that's my opinion you don't have to agree with that 
whatsoever. Just my thoughts. But, but the point is here that they're longing for something more. And it's out of that longing that there's something besides just I gave my life to Christ. It, it's out of that longing <coughs> that the entire Pentecostal movement began. Because now people are going, there's got to be more, there's got to be more, there's got to be more. And, and you see these sporadic moments all across America and around the world where, where people start to speak in tongues again. If they're not seeking tongues, which, by the way, don't seek tongues, seek God. That's, that's, that's a good nugget for somebody. But they're seeking God. They're seeking something. There's got to be more. They're hungry for more. They're pioneering. They're leaving the safety of this old theology and pioneering something new. And in that, they find that there's this extra work of grace that the Holy Spirit would actually fill them. And they would speak in tongues like has happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And they're seeing this and experiencing it in little sporadic moments all over. And new theologies start to become uh, created out of this. And, and out of this holiness movement that i got to live holy before Christ. Which, by the way... That's a whole other thing. Before you're like, I, I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like, just, I want to be holy. Yeah. I want to be holy. Don't, don't ask for the gifts if you're not willing to be holy. Yeah. If you're not going to live right, don't ask for God to give you some kind of gifts that are going to make him look bad. But that's another message for another day. And out of this, you, you get this new theology that starts popping up in, in little theology schools. Not universities, not big places, but little theology schools, usually on the wrong side of the tracks. And one of those is a guy by the name of Charles Parham. And Parham started his own little theology school. And he would teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit that you could speak in other tongues. And out of that comes this guy that, that maybe you've heard of before. And he was the least likely to be the leader of this. This guy by the name of William Seymour. <laughs> I love William Seymour. He's one of my personal heroes for all kinds of reasons. But William Seymour is, is born to slave parents in 1870. That His parents had literally been slaves. He had no money. He had no clout. He was one-eyed. One of his eyes had gone out from an injury. He only had one eye. Uh, he, he had nothing going for him in 1900. Come on. In those early years. He was, from, he was not somebody that should be leading something great. In fact, when he would go to Charles Parham's Bible College to learn about the baptism of the Holy Spirit... Because of the color of his skin, they wouldn't let him even go inside of the room to learn. He had to sit on the outside of the doors. Are you hungry? Are you, hu are you so hungry you can't be offended? I think that was from God. I ain't said that before. And so he's unoffendable. He's like, listen, I'm just hungry for God. I don't care what you call me. I don't want you to make fun of me. And he would sit outside the windows of the little Bible college of Charles Parham and sit outside the door sometimes. And he would take notes off of what they were saying because he was hungry. He, he becomes friends with Charles Parham, which is a weird relationship the whole time because Parham was always a little racist or a lot racist. I don't know. Uh, and so he becomes friends with him. And he ends up getting this call to go pastor a church in L.A., and so William Seymour says, 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 says all right, I'm going to go pastor this church. Charles Parham said, no, you're not ready. He said, all right, I'm going to do it anyway. So, so he goes and pastors this church. He's going to pastor this little church in L.A. He gets there the very first Sunday, the very first Sunday. He preaches on the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. That night, he comes back for the night service. They locked him out. That was a practice of that time period. Thank you for not locking me out today. Just fire me if you get not Don't you have to lock me out of the church. This is weird. But that was common at that time period. And so he goes back to the church. They lock him out of the church. In other words, you are fired. You are no longer our pastor. You made it through one service. 
Yay, good job, William Seymour. Some of us right there would fall, ourselves, fall in some great depression. Life is over. Nobody likes me. I can't do anything right. Maybe this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing is weird. If you're going to pioneer, you're going to have to face some struggles. I'm just telling you right now. And so, so, so he says, no, God's got me out here in California. So, so he, he goes to a house that's now famously called the Bonnie Bray House with some people that he had known who were interested in this baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. He goes in this house and starts teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People begin to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit begins to pour out and manifest in that place in a powerful way in this house. And people start flocking to the house. A little house, you can still go there in L.A., it's still there today. Now it's like a little museum to it. And, and out there on the porch, people would come and they'd stand on the porch to hear the message. One day, there's so many people standing on the porch that the porch collapses. Because of the weight of so many people being there. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the day where, where we just simply can't add services because there's just so many people that we got to put speakers out on the outside. We got to have people out in Main Street. We got to put speakers out in the parking lot. Not because of COVID and people want to do an online service, but because you just simply can't fit the human bodies because of the miracle that God's doing. And that's what's happening in William Seymour here. So all of these people are flocking. So, so he's like, hey, I, I, we got to find a location. <laughs> we, we're destroying this person's house, right? We got to find a location. So he goes to, to a little road called Azusa Street, wrong side of the tracks, in the industrial section of L.A. at the time. Wrong side of the tracks. It's a, it's a former church from a long time ago, but the church had been abandoned years before that and moved out and sold it to a stable. And so it had had horses and buggies and, and carriages. Again, this is early 1900s, so that was still common. And so that's what it had been used for for quite a while. The place was rickety. It was dirty. It was stinky. You, you do realize you cannot get the smell of a barn out of a building no matter how much you clean it. It was not, didn't smell the best. It was a mess. It was dirty. And, and they rented at 312 Azusa Street. Some of you will know that Azusa Street name. And they rent it there at 312 Azusa Street. And God begins to pour out his spirit in a miraculous way. And, and William Seymour starts preaching the gospel in a miraculous way. And preaching this newfound baptism of the Holy Spirit. And people begin flocking to this church in a way that was incredible. And, and God's doing weird stuff, crazy stuff, supernatural things. One person gets filled with the Holy Holy Spirit. They start speaking in eight different nas national languages. Uh, another person uh, is filled with the Holy Spirit. They start playing the piano instantly without ever practicing, without ever being uh, uh, taught. Without, they literally just sit down at the piano and they would start playing. The services would last from 10 a.m. to midnight every day for three years. It was unorganized as much as we want excellence in the church. We just had that conversation. It was totally unorganized. Nobody knew who was about to preach. Nobody knew when they were going to preach. William Seymour would stick his head inside of boxes, old shoe boxes that made the pulpit because there was no money. He would stick his head inside those shoe boxes and pray and pray and pray, and God would just pour out his spirit. And occasionally this person would stand up and speak, and this person would stand up and speak, and they would sing this song, and then he'd go to this song. I mean, this was a 14-hour service every day, y'all. <coughs> y'all with me so far? People would call the, the fire department on multiple occasions because they would literally see flames of fire outside of this building. Now, this building was tiny. This building was, was a, a, a 300 and, uh, I'm sorry, 40 feet by 60 feet. This is a small building. But they would consistently get between 350 and 400 people inside of this room. 
they would be packed to the gills. Sometimes with as many as a thousand people standing outside the building, just, just experiencing it. People would say that as they, as they started coming into that region, they would start feeling the Holy Spirit, even as they kind of got near the church. I just want to say, can people start feeling the Holy Spirit when they pull onto Paul's Drive? When they, when they get off of I-75, can they just start going, there's something different. What, what is it going on in this region? There's something different going on in this region. Because the revival was so thick. It was so amazing. Come on. Yeah. And God started moving in miraculous ways with miraculous healings, miraculous signs and wonders. Crazy things were happening, man. Critics came out of the woodwork. Because as soon as you start pioneering, you'll find critics. The people who want to stay in the safety of the harbor will always hate those who go out. And so the critics start coming out of the woodwork. And there was tons of critics during the, 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 during the revival. It was all kinds of ugly things that were said. And, and, and one of the critics that showed up there, he was from another country. And he shows up uh, from that country and he's sitting in the back of the room and he's taking notes for his article that he's going to write to criticize this revival because this isn't God at all. This is demons. And, and he's going to criticize it. And as he's, as he's back in the back of the room getting ready to write and criticize this revival, this man comes up to him speaking in tongues that's speaking his native language the critic's native language, and telling him through that native language what God is actually doing here. And you better not be writing critical stuff about this revival and, and start speaking to him in his... Come on, y'all. I'm just trying to broaden where you are to break a glass ceiling to say there's more than what we're experiencing. In an estimated 50,000 people over those few years attended the Azusa Street Revival and experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those 50,000 then went around the world and became the root system for the modern Pentecostal denominational movement all over the world. It has been the greatest thing for world evangelism that has ever happened since the day of, of Pentecost itself. That's our roots. Our roots are people who are pioneers and explorers willing to do something not normal, willing to step out and chase God wherever that leads, willing to look like a fool, willing to be criticized, willing to be ostracized. That's our roots. But now we got so nice and pretty and cute and, and we know how to say the right things and take the right offerings and give to the right things and, and we, have, we have our version of church, but we've lost that pioneering spirit. Testimonies feed our faith. It's frequently said that faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And when we read that scripture, we frequently read it as only the Bible. And that is killing some of you. If that were true, then all you'd have to do is read the Bible 24 hours a day or listen to the Bible on audio 24 hours a day and you'd be full of faith. Now, it's the Bible is part of that. That's a key ingredient. But testimonies feed our faith. Hearing what other people have done shows us that you can break a four-minute mile. Shows us that we can do more. Hearing what other people have done, hearing the stories of the Bible, hearing these things, they, they build our faith. And we gotta, we gotta create a passion around the things of God all over again. You do realize, as much as we don't like to admit this, you create your own passions. Uh, right now, uh, in my house, I have um, golf clubs that's sitting in the garage, and uh, they are a brand new set of irons, um, Titleist irons, still in the box. Been sitting there for months at this point, uh, probably five months, something like that. Uh, been sitting there for a while, um, and it drives Pastor Pete crazy. It's a long story, but Pastor Pete and Whitney and their family live with us, and um, and so they walk through our garage. And Pastor Pete will message me like, "Hey, um, you gonna uh, use these irons ever? Because Pete loves to golf. I, I I do enjoy golf, but I ain't got time to golf. I got I got a family and da da da. I just ain't got time. 
And so one day when I read old, I'll golf. I won't get any better. You can golf for the next 40 years. You're still going to stink. I'll get, I'll get old and golf. So I have nothing against golf. But I was at a tournament that was a part of a, a ministry thing. I was at a tournament to support a ministry. And the guy that was with me was really good. And so we won this tournament, and I won these golf clubs. And so they've been sitting in my garage, right? And so, um, so that's how the golf clubs got there. I don't just go buy golf clubs and leave them. Um, that's how they got there. So they were given to me. They were won. And so, so, so what will happen, though, is I'll ignore those golf clubs. And I'm not passionate about golf. But if I were to pick them up and go golf for three or four days in a row, you start getting that itch. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, yeah, I got I to gotta, I gotta start golfing. I gotta start. Brian's always trying to get me to go golfing with him. I'm like, I ain't got time. He's, he's upset about my golf clubs in the garage, too. He probably wants to borrow them, too. And so, so you get this itch, and all of a sudden, you start becoming passionate about golf. You're going out buying golf shoes. What in the snot is that anyway? Come on, really? You go buy golf shoes. You're buying polo shirts with Nike. You're trying to dress like Tiger Woods. You, uh, all of a sudden, you get passionate about golf simply by, by exposing yourself to it over and over for a little while. I got fishing poles that sit in my garage. I love to fish, but I never fish because I just don't have time. And so a couple times a year, I'll go fishing. Those poles sit there. But when I go fishing, I usually fish a lot. So I'll go over on vacation or something. We'll fish for three or four days in a row. I'll leave going, man, I got to fish more. I love fishing. I got to fish more. I got to make time to fish more. I got to do this. Why? Because I just created, I just re-sparked a passion inside of me. You create your own passions by what you spend time with. If you are not as passionate about God as you should be or used to be, now is the moment to create your new passions. Start spending more time with Him. Start watching YouTube videos and sermons and teachings and, and different things like that that you can do that just ignite that passion in you all over again. And you can create your own passion. So can I do this with you for just a second? <coughs> I got to hurry. We've had a lot go on this morning. But for just a second, I just want to share some testimonies. Let me give you a couple biblical ones, and then I'm going to share some personal ones of either stuff I know or stuff I've experienced. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, Paul doing his thing. Boasting, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Paul is referring to himself, by the way. He's talking about himself in that third person. So I know a man. Whether it be in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. When's the last time you were caught up into paradise, into a third heaven, and heard the literal voice of God speaking to you and telling you things that are inexpressible to tell? Because I'm telling you it's possible. Because if it happened with Paul, it can happen with you. He is not special. He is not elect. He is not set aside any more than you are. It's a matter of hunger and desperation for the things of God. That there's more out there than what you're experiencing. There's something that God wants to show you that he hasn't, you haven't seen yet. No mortal eye has seen or heard the goodness of God that's going to be declared to you when you get hungry for God and go after it. Acts chapter 5, we'll come back to Acts in a minute, but Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through 16. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. So they're doing all these miraculous signs and wonders. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Why? Because they're doing such amazing things. 
Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Come on. That's just weird. That's just crazy. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented with impure spirits. And all of them were healed. Can you imagine the conversations in the early church? The early church, like, like, like Peter and John, like hanging out, and they're like, hey, so um, people are putting mats out to, for our shadows to touch them now. And our shadows, are, are people getting healed just for being in our shadow. Can you imagine? How come our conversations aren't like that in the church anymore? How come our conversations are now, oh, the air condition's broke? Ah. Uh, how come our conversations are so superficial and silly compared to the conversations of the early church? Man, I just want to spread your, your horizons for just a second. There's, there's a guy by the name of Henry Garlock. He was a, one of the early Pentecostal missionaries for the Assemblies of God. And in 1920, he goes to, to a region of Africa called Liberia. And when he's in Liberia, he goes to a group of people that this is 100 years ago, so you've got to understand where things are at at that time period. But they were cannibals. They're called the pawn people. And he decides he's called to go there to the pond people and to, to witness to the pond people. And shortly after he gets there, it's a long story, I can't tell you all of it right now. But shortly after he gets there, days after he gets there, his wife gets malaria. And in order to get her the help that she needs, they need to go through the pond territory, the cannibals territory. There's a lot of ways to die. That is not one that I want to be a part of. And so they got to go through pond territory in order to get to the, the medical attention she needs fast enough. Otherwise, they'd have to go around it, and it's going to take too long. And so they, they, they figure out how to go, and they, they start to go. One of the guys gets captured in the group, and he decides, Henry decides, i got to go rescue this guy because he's going to be Liam Neeson. He's going to go rescue the guy because that's probably what I would do too, and it probably wouldn't work for me either. And so Henry decides, I'm going to go rescue this guy. And so he gets a band of guys together to go rescue them. Meanwhile, Henry gets caught. Missionary. Newly baptized in the Holy Spirit, excited about God, but now he is caught by cannibals. He is tied up, awaiting to be killed, and yeah, he's waiting, not understanding what's going on. They're speaking in their tribal dialect all around him. Some kind of congress is being formed. People are yelling and shouting, and all this is going on. And he finds out later that it's a trial that's going on. That's what's going on, but he didn't know in the moment. And all this is going on. And, and the, the chief uh, witch doctor that's leading this group, eventually after they stop shouting at one another and arguing, they, they slap him on the feet and they all get quiet to listen to him. He has no idea what's going on, but all he can think of is the Gospel of Matthew. It says that Jesus said that when you don't know what to say, just lean into the Holy Spirit because he will give you the words to say. So I don't know what to say. What do you say? They don't speak English. <laughs> so what do you say? So missionary Henry starts praying in tongues. He, the Holy Spirit comes on him, and he noticed that it's not a normal tongue that he's praying in. It sounds like a language. And as he's praying in tongues, all of the tribal people around him get quiet, and they're listening, and they're all like intent. And he's like, what's going on right here as he's praying in tongues? And lo and behold, the very language he was speaking was that tribe's language telling them, I am a messenger from God, and you do not kill me. You do not eat me. I am a messenger from God, and you need to listen to what I have to say. They take then and they find a, a little uh, white um, a chicken or uh, chicken or um, a rooster and they break its neck and they cut it and they spill blood all over him as a representation that now you are free and this chicken dies in your place. Come on, talk about set up the gospel. That there was a, 
atoning sacrifice for missionary Henry. And they let him go. And he ends up continuing to work with these people. All I'm trying to show you is that there's more out there than what we've experienced. And sometimes we don't know it because you haven't heard the stories. You haven't, haven't seen it. I can tell you story after story after story. I, I, I grabbed this out of my office today. A few years ago, I was in Nepal uh, trekking through the Himalayas and, and in this one little area in the middle of nowhere. I get out there and this guy comes up to us and uh, uh, in his, 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 uh, uh, through a translator, he's a Hindu priest, he comes up to us and he says, uh, do you have eyeglasses? He saw a white guy, he assumed I was some kind of medical person and I'm like, no, I don't have eyeglasses but I know the one who can heal your eyes. Come on. You ever say things and after you say it, you're like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on. Let's be real. I'm just praying that we become a church that constantly says things that now God has to live up to. That we live on the edge of our ignorance. That we are out on a limb. And if God doesn't show up, we're going to look like a fool. Because I would rather be a fool for Christ than wise in the way of the world. So I thought, I'm going to be really bold. So I stepped back and I said, how many fingers am I holding up from not very far away? How many fingers am I holding up? He, he said, I, I can't tell. I said, all right, so you can't even see. I mean, this was six, seven feet. He couldn't even see. This is all through a translator. So I said, we're going to pray for your eyes. So at the time, it was me and Josh and Jason Williams, and we gathered around him and, and prayed for his eyes. We got done praying and said, said all right, can, can you see? And he said, yeah, I can see. And, and we stepped back, and I said, how many fingers am I holding up? He said, three. And we stepped back even further and said, how many more am I holding up now? And he named it. Went back even further, how many am I holding up now? And God supernaturally healed a Hindu priest's eyes. As a way of sharing the gospel with, I'm just trying to expand your horizons. There's a guy named by the name of Trinity Jordan who was, who was a, a pastor for many years. Now he's an attorney, just shared a great testimony. I know that's weird for some of you, but attorneys can get saved. <coughs> that might be the miracle right there. I'm just teasing. We had a lot of attorneys here. I'm just teasing. But, but Trinity, Trinity's just a, just a great man of God. And at one point he was becoming an Assembly God missionary. And when you're an Assembly God missionary, you itinerate, which means going to different churches to raise money to be able to go out onto the field and take offerings and things like that. And Trinity, Trinity is, is driving through Wyoming, because he was from Utah, and he's driving through Wyoming to get to this next place. If you've ever driven through Wyoming, you have driven through nothing. I'm not kidding. You can drive for six hours in Wyoming and never see another human being. Like, antelope outnumber humans in Wyoming, and that's true. Um, and so he's driving through Wyoming. As he's driving, he's mentally frustrated. The kids are asleep. His wife's asleep. But he's just arguing with God. God, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of doing this missions thing. I don't want to do this anymore. And he's, he's mentally arguing with God. He goes up two different hills. They call them the sisters, these two mountains. On the top of one of the mountains, or probably both of them, they had snow and ice, and, and it was slick. And as they get up one of the mountains, there's a semi-truck that's driving slow in front of them. So he goes to pass the semi-truck. He gets just past the semi-truck, and all of a sudden he sees his car going sideways. Come on. And he starts going down the side of the mountain. And if I remember the story correct, I think he flipped six times going down the side of the mountain. Six times. He gets at the bottom of the mountain, and, and he steps out of the car, and he's trying, you know, figuring everything out. And he's looking at the kids and grabbing them, and, and everybody's perfectly fine. He had a little gash on his hand, but other than that, people were all fine. He's, he's like, oh, my God, thank you, God, thank you, God. And he's down here at the bottom of the mountain. The, the semi-truck driver had already called the police and the, the rescue units to come and help because it looked so, so bad. And so they had already done that. And he's standing there at the bottom of the mountain now with the cop over here and his wife talking to the, sem or the, I'm sorry, the semi-driver over here and the wife talking to the semi-driver and his kids doing their thing. And he's looking at this, at this truck. 
and he turns around, and there's a man walking towards him. All right, that's weird all by itself. You don't walk around Wyoming. Like, you could walk forever and never get anywhere, right? You don't walk around. So that, that's kind of weird. This guy's walking up. And he also kind of looks different than a Wyoming cowboy probably usually looks. This dude, black dude with cornrows, got a big um, ring in his, in his lip, and, and just looks different, kind of stands out. And he's in the middle of nowhere. And he, wow, that's really bizarre. The guy walks up to him, and he, he starts to have a little bit of a conversation with him. And the guy looks at him in the eyes, and he says, don't you dare quit. In the moment that he's so mad and frustrated, and he starts to break down, and he said he stuck his hand on the guy's shoulder, and, and you know, just kind of a, you know, yeah. And he turns around to call his wife to come meet this guy, and he turns back around, and he's completely gone. He touched him. He was there. He turns back around, and he's completely gone, which really might mess up some of your theology about what angels look like. Good. Good. God will send a Jamaican angel to Wyoming. Come on. <laughs> but I just, I just want to shatter that glass ceiling of what you can expect. How many times have you entertained angels and not realized you were entertaining the very presence of God that was there to comfort you and encourage you? <laughs> oh, my gosh. My friend Shane Willard was in Fiji one time. And, and Shane is working with a Hindu priest in Fiji. I'm just going to tell you a couple more. I promise I won't stay long. I know you're going to come back for tonight, but... But Shane, Shane is working, and he's witnessing to this Hindu priest. Well, Hindu priests will oftentimes just add Jesus to their plethora of gods. And so he's got a whole shelf of gods. And he's like, yeah, I'll add Jesus to the, to the group of gods. That's fine. And, and, and Shane says, no, no, it's not like that. Like, he is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He's not just a God. He is the God. And so he's trying to explain this to him. Well, the Hindu priest says, well, I have had a son who has been mute uh, for years, for years, like a decade or something. I forget the exact time. But he said, my son has been mute for years. He hasn't been able to speak. And so Shane, doing what we do as Pentecostals and as people of faith, blurts out, well, my God can heal your son. Come on, once again. You ever have those moments you say something and then you're like, uh, yeah, now I got to back up what I just said. Or God has to back up what he just said. And so he said, my God can heal your son. He's like, all right, he's going to go get my son. So he, he sends somebody to go get the son. And, and Shane, I love how Shane tells the story because you know how we are as church people. We're like, all right, God, I got to build my faith. <laughs> I need to pray this. I need to pray this. I need to make sure I pray in faith. I need to pray these words. Right, because that's what we start doing in the natural, right? So he's like, he's thinking about all these. He's like, man, I, I really, I'm going to look like an idiot if this doesn't work. God, I put you to the test. I'm sorry if that was wrong. But and so he's like fighting in his own mind what's about to happen. The boy comes in. The young man at this point comes in. He comes in and walks into the room. Shane never said a word. The boy spits out, Jesus is Lord. The first words he had said, Jesus is Lord. Shane never had to pray for him. All he had to do was step out in faith and pioneer and do something that feels awkward and weird and get out of the norm. Man, I could tell you story after story after story. God giving me names of people sometimes where, where he'll give me a name. And, and I'm like, I don't usually operate that way. That's kind of weird. And all of a sudden I call out that name and God heals them miraculously of pains and problems that they've had for years and decades. People like Smith Wigglesworth, who, who has been used by God to do incredible, incredible miraculous things that I would love to share stories of and we just don't have time. People, he, him telling people to buy a larger shoe and they go buy it and their foot grows out where it had been amputated. Their foot grows out to the length of their shoe. And you're like, oh, that's too weird. All I can tell you is there's more to God than what you've known. There might be more out there than what you have personally 
experienced. I was in Mexico one time. We, our whole team prayed for this girl. She was born without taste buds, which is bizarre and weird, I know. But she was born without taste buds. And it would cause problems all of her life because she would eat things that were bad and it would make her sick. I'm like, I didn't even know you could be born without taste buds. So our team gathers around this girl and prays for her. God miraculously, supernaturally grows taste buds on this teenage girl's mouth. She starts the whole, because we were there for like another three or four days at that particular church. Every time we saw her after that, she had suckers and candy and lollipops. and Because she was tasting for the first time in her life. Come on, somebody. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to show you there's more than what we're experiencing. There's greater things. I remember uh, praying for Becca on the same trip, praying for Becca Burtis. We'd, we'd got our team together, and I'm going to be the, the spirit-filled one, and I'm going to teach our team how to pray in faith, right? That's, I'm going to teach her how to pray. We'll get the whole team together. Some of y'all were there. We've got the whole team together. And, and, and so, all right, who has a need that we can pray for? I'm going to teach you how to pray. I'm going to teach you how. And so Becca comes up front, and she said, I, have a, I haven't been able to hear out of my left ear all my life. I've had multiple surgeries out of it, but I haven't been able to hear out of my, my left ear. I think she had had something like 12 surgeries. And I wasn't really even praying in that much faith. I was just praying to show everybody else how to pray and demonstrating how to pray for the sick. And we start praying for Becca, and she's sitting down in front of me in the chair. And I'm, I got my hand on my shoulder, and I'm praying over her like this. And all of a sudden, as I'm praying, she goes, Pastor Brent, you are so loud. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, she could hear out of an ear that she had never heard of. <coughs> She had never heard out of that ear before. Man, I could tell you so many other stories. I wish I had time to share them. Things that were happening in the Welsh revival where people, the holiness of God was coming on a city to such a great degree that people would turn themselves into the police for crimes they had committed 10 years ago. People sending in money to companies they used to work for because they had stolen this or that. And a decade later, they're sending in money and apology letters to, to make restitution for the things that they had done. People like, people like uh, uh, Reese Howells, who was one of the in early intercessors in the intercessory movement. And Reese Howells would take his group of intercessors and he would pray during World War II. I think it was World War II, either one or two. But he would pray during the World War. And, and, and he would see visions of battlefields and recognize what was happening. And he would lead his intercessory prayer group to pray over the different things that were happening. Meanwhile, the next day or the day after, they would hear it on the radio, because that's how it was back then, that exactly what they had prayed over had just happened. And while there was a physical battle happening, there was a spiritual battle happening at the same time. And make no mistake, I love our infantry, and I love those, those men and women of God who have served, but sometimes they need a backing behind them that's greater than a commander, greater than a general, greater than some kind of lieutenant. They need somebody behind them that's the Holy Spirit of God. And I believe with all my heart that it wasn't just that our men were so great and our women were so great. It's because the presence of God was going before them because of people like Reese Howells. But it challenges our status quo. I got to quit. <laughs> I literally have another dozen of these I'd love to share. Comparison. You say that, but our kids' ministry is going to kill me. Number three, if you're taking notes, comparison kills hunger, and I'll end with this. Comparison kills hunger. What's happening across the church world so often is we compare ourselves to the person next to us. And I'm just as spiritual as they are. I might be even a little bit more spiritual than they are. And instead of comparing ourselves to the Bible, instead of comparing ourselves to the biblical heroes, instead of comparing ourselves to our own potential or what God has called us to, we're comparing ourselves to somebody else, which keeps us in this status quo and nice, clean, pretty, packaged version of Christianity where you're never praying for the sick and seeing miracles. Nothing supernatural really ever happens in your life, maybe once every 20 years or something, but... And it's 
not really the revival that God wants to send. It's bigger than that. There's a difference between being a thermometer and being a thermostat. Thermometers can always tell the temperature of the room. They can, they can tell what's happening. Uh, thermometers are awesome, but, but they're not going to change the temperatures. Thermostats change the temperatures. Thermostats affect the entire room. I'm looking for a group of people who will be thermostats to say, I'm going to do more. I'm going to do something greater. I'm going to press forward. I'm going to go beyond what I've experienced in the past. I'm not going to judge myself based on who's around me. I'm judging myself based on the Word of God and what God has called me to do and my own potential in what God has called me to do. That's what, that's what I'm looking for is thermostats whose hunger exceed their grasp. My friend Tommy Tenney would say, you become a God chaser when your hunger for God exceeds your grasp and you're always chasing for more and more and more of God. Listen, what should be your standard? I, I respect these theologians, but I would disagree. It floors me every time I hear it said, which is not very often, but occasionally, that the book of Acts was not meant to be a model for the church today. The book of Acts was just just what they experienced in the early church and the supernatural things of the book of Acts was just, that was just to get the church started. My God, we need the book of Acts again today. The book of Acts should be the model for our expected Christian life. That should be our model. If they did it there, we should be doing it here or striving to do that and even beyond some. Prison breaks, earthquakes, Revival happening in such a supernatural way. That should be our direction. That should be our future as well. If we see it in the book of Acts, I hope I start seeing it in our lives. Stand up with me around the room. It'll help me close. <sighs> to some of you, that's all this message is. And it's a weird message. It's not a typical message. But I hope it's the type of message that stirs something deep inside of you. A hunger to explore, to pioneer, to go out, to experience something greater than what you've experienced. To go into the great unknown with only God's presence with you. To see what you really could do for God. What you really could be in his hands. Not just settling for the safety of staying back. For years in Spain before Christopher Columbus was born, the motto of Spain was, Nay plus ultra, which meant no more beyond. Because they believed that they had already discovered everything that there was to discover. All that there was had already been revealed to them, therefore there was no more beyond. So a motto of Spain became nay plus ultra. And one of the coolest statues of Christopher Columbus is in this picture, and, and you can't see it there so well, but, but I'll, I'll describe it to you. Uh, in Spain, they have this statue of him. And if you can see it wrapped around the globe-looking thing in the middle, is the sign that says, Nay plus Ultra. But where the Nay is, there's a lion. You can see it on the left right there. And the lion is reaching up, and he's clawing out the word Nay. In other words, no more beyond took off the word no, and now there is more beyond. I pray this morning that the lion of the tribe of Judah takes off the Nay off of your life. And you think, I've experienced all that God has for me. No, there is more beyond. And we have to be the people that are hungry enough to actually go after the more beyond. And maybe I fail. Maybe I stumble. Maybe it doesn't work. But I would rather die going forward than live leading back. One of the problems with the church is that we've stopped hungering for more of God. Are you hungry for more of God? Because that's what this message is meant to do, is to stir your appetite that God wants to do more. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider subscribing? If you were moved by this message, we would love to hear your testimony. Please email it to amen at myarisechurch.com. I pray you leave here feeling encouraged and inspired. We'll see you next time.